Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we are broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, and we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you have not already done so, make sure that you are connected to us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. You may miss the nightly broadcast on AM radio or the live stream, but you can always go back to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or tune in, and you will find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, we keep it simple and we keep it easy for your family. Uh, I am happy to have joining me in studio a scholar, activist, uh, attorney, Tariq Khalil uh, from AMP, American Muslims for Palestine. Uh, he has a long and uh, distinguished uh, list of uh, engagement and accomplishments within the uh, Muslim community, and we welcome him back to Radio Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Um, so you've been busy, right? So we were, we were chatting a little bit. All, all A&P has been busy, which means I've been busy. <laughs> and as an education coordinator, I've been even busier than I've been before. But alhamdulillah, it's, yeah. it's, for, it's for a noble cause, and it's a cause that I love, and mm -hmm. it's a cause that I uh, will, con will continue to fight for. Well, I appreciate you beginning by giving A&P that shout-out. Uh, and and letting folks know that the work you do is larger than just you as an individual. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So and and that and that's the greater work. That's the greater work. So um, tell us tell us about the uh, recent National uh, Advocacy Day uh, that took place uh, in D.C. Right. So um, we had our uh, annual uh, AMP Advocacy Day just a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. and. You know, uh, AMP, American Muslims for Palestine, they put it together. Phenomenal, phenomenal thing because um, the goal of it was essentially to use our information, our resources to pressure our members of Congress to do what's right, mm -hmm. to not necessarily take a position on the Israel-Palestine conflict, but to follow the Constitution, to, to uphold our rights that's granted to us in the United States Constitution. So um, if there is a bill that we that we believe is anti-First Amendment, we tell them, look, how can you vote against a bill such as this? Mm -hmm. um, for instance, when we visited um, one of the, uh, the staffers for Tammy Duckworth, uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth, the simple question was, why did Tammy Duckworth support the Anti-BDS Act? And this act essentially chills our First Amendment rights, and, and it punishes those that seek to boycott, um, which, is, which is a First Amendment-protected right mm -hmm. under our Constitution. And the response that I got was very interesting. Well, there are, there are four sections to the, to the bill, three of which deal with strengthening our ties overseas, one of which deals with um, anti-BDS, and, you know, uh, Senator Duckworth felt that those three... Um, superseded that one so overall as a as a whole package there was more good than bad th therefore that's why she, she voted for it so I tackled that logic I said okay so are you saying that strengthening ties overseas is more important than protecting our First Amendment rights at home is that the argument that you're telling me mm -hmm. and his response was I wouldn't exactly put it that way I'm like that's exactly how you put it you just didn't use the word First Amendment right I used the words First Amendment 
And now that that struck a chord and you don't want it to sound that way. But that's exactly what she did. Senator Durbin voted for it precisely because First Amendment rights overrode his concerns for um, ties overseas. So different, different logical approach there. Yeah, what the whole um, this this idea of of of, of cra- crafting anti BDS legislation uh, in light of American history, where economic boycotting has been has Long played such tradition. a pivotal you know has played such a pivotal role in being able to bring about uh, social change, equality, and, and just human dignity. Um, it, it's almost laughable. It's like how, Before our founding, the Boston yeah. Tea uh, boycott, you had the Montgomery bus boycott. I mean, right. you just have many examples throughout. It's it's part of American culture. In fact, it is quintessentially American mm-hmm. to engage in boycotts. But that's not even the point. We're not even telling these congressional members to support the concept of boycotts right. against against Israel. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not even asking for that support. We're not even asking them to support BDS. We're not even asking them to take a position that's pro-Palestinian, pro-Constitution. Yeah, It's a very basic right. It's a foundational right mm-hmm. that you're not willing to work your tails off to make sure that it is protected. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it. You represent us, and this is how you deal with this issue. It's it's unbelievable. It's wrong, and it's unacceptable. The, the, the candidates that want to rerun or yeah. the candidates that want to run against... Um, the incumbent candidates, they better make sure that they are on point when it comes to the Constitution, because if they're not, they're going to they're gonna hear it from me and AMP and a lot of other activists. Let's talk about how those other activists uh, become involved in, uh, because there is an amplification of voices that comes about when we work within coalitions. And one of the visible partnerships and supports that I've seen is that of the African-American community, Palestinian uh, community, and and working on the intersection of those issues. Could you talk a bit about that? Intersectionality is a vital concept in in our struggle for liberation from Ferguson to Palestine. There you go. So, you know, um, we need this intersectional approach to uh, bringing about this this real, real fundamental change, okay? We can't accept uh, superficial change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, black oppression in the United States, Palestinian oppression in uh, Palestine, there is a connection there. And we have to make sure that we make that connection. And we have to make sure that we're in solidarity with those that are struggling for for liberation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's an interesting concept that uh, people accuse Bernie Bernie Sanders of uh, of uh, of invoking, which is uh, progressive except for Palestine. Mm. You know, sometimes we're progressive only on Palestine, and we can't be either or. Right. We have to be progressive across the board. Mm-hmm. If you're not if, if you're not willing to fight f- um, to for the liberation of all peoples, then you really can't be selective in your in your liberation struggle, because then it's not a, it's not really a genuine struggle. Mm-hmm. So this is this is absolutely vital to our work. Black Lives Matter, um, Palestinian rights. I mean, you name it. Women's rights. I mean, it goes it goes it, it goes across the board. And we have to make sure that that whenever rights are trampled, mm-hmm. we have to be there for the other, whichever marginalized group that is. We have to be there for them. Period. Yeah, yeah it, it's an interesting time that we're in. Um, and I guess every generation will say that, you know, that we're in interesting times uh, in that <laughs> we have such a comfort level right now with uh, certain aspects of the media adopting positions that totally negate 
uh, human rights uh, violations, totally um, ignore uh, the fact that there are uh, women and children or just nonviolent protesters being being maimed, being gunned down. Um, we're, we're in a really interesting time. Can you talk a bit about how media uh, representation and how the issue of Palestine is covered, how that affects your advocacy and how you engage folks who maybe that's all they see, that's all they know about it, is, is what they see on television. Now, interestingly, there has been a shift in our media. Mm-hmm. Not a major one, but a noticeable one, yeah. an observable one. Because now you do have Palestinians on mainstream media mm-hmm. talking about our cause. You do have the receding Palestine map that's sometimes not, not a lot, but it's now shown on mainstream media. So you, you get these images and you get these perspectives that are anti-Zionistic in orientation in our mainstream media. Mm-hmm. It's not pervasive, but it's there. So it's there, so exactly. Mm-hmm. And that shift is something that we should take notice of because it's not something minor. So you, so you do see this change. And, but overall, the media has definitely played a vital, uh, a vital role in, I mean, I want to say the word brainwash our, our populace into, 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 into thinking that the oppressor is the oppressed, the occupier is the occupied, and the colonizer is the colonized, just reversing the history on its head. Yeah. And this is, th- this is the imagery that we at AMP and other groups as well, we're tackling that imagery so we can reverse that trend and bring it, bring it back home, okay? Because the presentation is asymmetrical, and that's how it should be presented because it is an asymmetrical conflict. And you are dealing, you're not, you're not dealing with two warring parties that are fighting over a disputed territory. Right. That's, how, that's how it's presented in the media. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case at all. You're, you're dealing with the people that are denied freedom of movement. You're dealing with the people that are living under collect- collective punishment. You're dealing with, the, with the people that are living under daily bombardment, whether it's aerial bom- bombardment, bombing, whether it's home demolitions, whether it's the denial of basic rights, amenities, I mean, you name it. This is not... This is not uh, a hard distinction to make. It really is black and white when it comes to this. Yeah. To, to create a shade of gray, which is what our Congress people do. Because the media presents it within either black and white in the reverse, mm-hmm. or they present it with some, with some uh, gradations. And there is none here. You have a clear oppressor and a clear oppressed. And you have to stand with the, with the oppressed. We make it that simple because it is that simple. Mm-hmm. With... This current administration's engagement with Israel, with their recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, with their, um, and, and then also now looking at how elections are, have, have played out um, in Israel, what are the prospects for, and, and what is the position of Palestinians with regard to a two state? Uh, solution. How do those things impact that possibility, even in conversation? Well, let's. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack with that. Yeah. With that uh, question. One, we have to make a clear distinction between what Trump says and does, mm-hmm. and what international law says and is. Okay. Yeah. So when when Trump says J- Jerusalem is now the capital of Israel, mm-hmm. that's not what international law says. Right. And international law is the law that must govern that should govern, mm-hmm. not 
a Trump declaration. That's not what governs. And under, under international law, Jerusalem is not part of sovereign Israel, whether we're talking about East or West Jerusalem. That is why there have been no embassies there mm-hmm. because, of, because of that legal status that is part of customary international law. So to try to change that, to try to you know, sub, sub, subvert that in any way is just a clear contravention of international law. So it's that simple. Same thing with the Golan Heights. Mm-hmm. I, and even using Israel's argument to say that um, the West Bank is, is disputed ter- territory, and their, and their argument is very simple. West Bank was, is not a part of a sovereign state, was never part of a sovereign state. Jordan had control of it. Therefore, since it, it was never part of a sovereign state, it belongs to nobody. It's, it's disputed land. It's up for negotiations. Okay, mm-hmm. but, but using that logic, the Golan Heights is part of sovereign Syria. So mm-hmm. using, even using Israeli logic or Zionist logic, they're, based on their argument, the Golan is part of Syria. But they have a different argument with uh, respect to the Golan. We want it in a defensive war, and because we want it in a defensive war, it belongs to us. It's just nothing is grounded in, in international law. It's just based on Zionist logic. Mm-hmm. So um, we have to make that distinction clear. It is without international legal effect. It is null and void, and these are the words of international law with respect to the Golan Heights and with respect to Jerusalem as well. So the Israeli elections... There really was no difference between the, the candidates. There, there, there wasn't an, an appreciable difference. Okay. So Benjamin Netanyahu adv- advocated for the annexation of all the settlements, including the small settlement outposts that are, that are way deep into the West Bank. Mm-hmm. His, um, the, his rival, Benny Gantz, from the, um, Blue, from the Blue and White Party, his platform essentially called for the same thing, just left out the outpost part. So, I mean, it's, it's extreme, but not, then Netanyahu said, I'm even more extreme. That, that's essentially the basic differences between, between the two. So the winner is ultimately not going to make a difference because our activism is based on applying pressure, not based on negotiating with a, with a likable leader, with a likable candidate. Right. That's not the basis of our a- activism. It's to ab- apply pressure, it's to apply BDS, it's to affect change through the implementation of international law, not through a negotiation mechanism. Now, you know, when you mention international law, yes, it definitely, this is what we should be looking at. But I think like with most issues where where the population is not really educated around an issue, it becomes uh, a matter of public opinion where things are, at least from the public standpoint, right, they're not aware of that there is a body of law that says that you're supposed to act in uh, a particular uh, way. You're supposed to deal with your disputes in a particular manner. Uh, it just becomes, this is what I see on television. This is what I hear propagated by uh, right wing, by, by the Zionist uh, agenda. Sure. That being said, who do we look to? that's going to be the one to champion international law, uh, to make sure that the proper standards are being held, if the United States is now silent. Well, I'll regurgitate my earlier point. Um, BDS is grounded in international law norms. Okay. So the three violations that BDS targets, and by the way, when I was at uh, one of the staffers for Senator Durbin's office, I asked that I, I asked that question. I didn't get a response. So they are they're opposed to BDS, but they don't know what BDS really is. And same thing with these other congressional staffers. You you ask 
you ask them that that same question, they just see it as this big monster that's anti-Semitic without without with, without really explaining what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Boycott, divestment, sanctions targets three violations that are legal under international law. Okay, mm-hmm. the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, which includes East. Jerusalem and the Golan Heights because BDS calls for the ending the occupation of Arab lands and Arab lands includes the Golan Heights but because it's a vital it's a vital water resource for Israel they will that's that's something that they will not uh, want to back down on as well so that's one violation the other violation is the inequality of Palestinians that live within Israel proper the area within the be, between the West Bank and Gaza Mm-hmm. So full equality for them, ending the occupation of Arab lands, and implementing the right of return under international law, uh, specifically under UN Resolution 194. So, okay, in accordance with that resolution, implementing Resolution 194. These three violations, okay, the dismantling of those violations brings balance to the system, okay? Mm-hmm. It's a minimalist position. It's the absolute, it's the bare minimum that international law allows that's what bds is asking for what is the zionist agenda asking for more annexation more collective punishment more settlements more dispossession that's extreme that's the extremist position so what does the media do they reverse it Mm -hmm. they make bds seem like the extreme the maximalist position okay they make the zionist agenda seem like the minimalist position when it, the exact opposite is true. So when you, when, when you present it that fashion to our congressional leaders and they begin to interpret it in that way, then slowly but surely these policy prescriptions will begin to change. And then they'll, then they'll begin to side with the oppressed because then they'll understand the basic idea behind BDS, which is to restore order and to restore Palestinian rights. That's all it is. It's not asking for a reverse in the order. Right. It's not. It's not asking for Palestinians to now become the new Zionist entity in uh, in uh, Palestine and now rule over Jews and and suppress them. No, it's not the reverse of what's happening now. It's to bring balance. That's all. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And they don't understand it in that way. They understand it as an anti-Semitic movement that wants to wipe Jews out of the out of uh, uh, Palestine, Israel. Some of the greatest activists for BDS are Jews. I'm sure they don't think that we're going to wipe them out or attack them, okay? So it's, they don't use common sense. Could you talk a bit about that partnership, about the, the Jewish alliance that recognize uh, the humanitarian crisis, that what has been described as the largest open-air prison in the world, uh, uh, Gaza? Gaza. Uh, could you talk about how important that has been? Because I don't think that relationship gets as much attention as it deserves. You know, one of uh, one of our frequent guests at our AMP convention mm-hmm. um, each year, and um, we're gonna have another one, of course, uh, this upcoming Thanksgiving at the Hyatt in uh, Rosemont. Mm-hmm. Um, a, f- a frequent guest is Miko Pellet, who's uh, who's yeah. um, an Israeli Jew, an anti-Zionist at a, at a, at his core, and we also had um, Israeli scholar historian Ilan Pape come uh, a couple of times as well, and he's also uh, an Israeli Jew, and he's also an anti-Zionist. I mean, just wonderful, wonderful solidarity activists mm-hmm. um, and scholars and, and educators. So JVP, um, an organization that we, Jewish Voice for Peace, 
we coordinate a lot of we, we coordinate our events with them as well sometimes and we invite them to our events we go to their events we're always doing um, coalition work t- together so that's a phenomenal anti-zionist jewish organization as well this is something that is left out in the story because the media want the claim of anti-semitism to be and to be equal to anti-zionism to stick Right. And if you present those stories, it doesn't stick. It falls off the wall. So in order to equate these two, anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and anti-Zionism, which is what Ilhan Omar says and does, mm-hmm. they want to try to equate these two things to create that image that if you are pro-BDS, which is, an anti, which is anti-Zionist in its orientation, if you are pro-BDS, that means you are anti-Zionist. And since being anti-Zionist means being anti-Semitic, you're also anti-Semitic. Right. And that's how they make that connection. So our job is to completely unravel that connection and create a disconnection because they are in they are worlds apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier about the Golan Heights and its uh, significance as far as being the water supply uh, for Israel. Are Palestinians also getting their water from the same space? Well, the <laughs> the the subterranean uh, water supply for Israel is is uh, majorly in the West Bank. Okay. So um, Palestinians, the amount that they receive is not in accord with the international standard. The international standard is equitability, um, equitable utilization, and also reasonableness. And that's not the case with uh, Palestinians. They get, they, I believe they get one-third of what the standard is supposed to be. I think 100 cubic, cubic meters, and they get about 30-something. Right. Um, and I believe Israelis get 800 cubic meters So uh, per so this is in Gaza. It's even worse. In Gaza, they barely have um, livable water. I mean, it's just it's 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 mm. not even clean. So I mean, they're 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 trying to live off clean water, and there's just not a, not enough supply of it. So, but that's but that's because of the brutal illegal Israeli blockade on Gaza, and so with uh, with respect to the to the Golan Heights. The 20,000 or so Syrians that live on the, on the Golan Heights, mm-hmm. just so um, the audience here knows, Golan Heights is part of Syrian territory, so Syrians do live on there. There's about an equal amount of uh, Israeli settlers that also live on there, but the Israeli settlers overwhelmingly get the, get the majority of that water versus the Syrian inhabitants there as well. So there is this monopoly, mm-hmm. and to a large extent, Israeli, the Israeli government sells the water to the Palestinians. They're selling their own water. So they're taking the Palestinians' water and they're selling it back to them That's cold. For, for gain, for profit. This is, this is part of the occupation. And one thing to note, about, especially about water, water is one of those issues that's um, with uh, respect to the PLO-Israeli agreements the, called the Oslo Accords from 93 mm-hmm. up until 1999. Within those agreements the water resources is left for final status negotiations. The most, v- the, the most basic thing in life, water, yeah. is left for a final status negotiation. So we can, we can d- discuss about uh, allocation right now, but in terms of its final status or in terms of its overall status, we're going to leave that until the end. We're going to talk about that later. That there are within, within the Oslo framework, Mm-hmm. Us activists, we don't operate with it with, within that framework. But with the, even within the Oslo framework, along with East Jerusalem mm-hmm. settlements, 
um, boundaries, territory, the right of return. Water is also part of those, part of that final status, uh, part of those final status issues. So these things are left for the end, and they still have not agreed on it. So Israel has this unfair, inequitable monopoly that is not grounded in international law. I was about to say once again, this is something that is dictated by international yes. law. Yes. What water, uh, as far as water consumption, and, I believe and, it's and the. I mean the 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 main. I mean there's there's a whole host of um, uh, documents, but I think the overarching one is the '97 uh, UN Convention on um, um, non navigational um, uses and water course. Uh, um, I believe that's 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 the name of the convention, but also International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. I mean, you name it, it's ac it's across the board. It's in, it's in violation of every single treaty. <laughs> it's in, it's in, it's in, and, and it's not just that. It's part of the overall policy of, of uh, collectively punishing the Palestinians that live on the West Bank, especially in Gaza as well. Hmm. Now, going back to BDS, uh, last I checked, the number may have changed. Um, I'm sure you would probably know. I think there were 13 states that had passed uh, anti-BDS legislation. And with the National uh, uh, Advocacy Day, you're looking to make sure that we don't have a federal uh, resolution that's, you know, that's passed regarding anti-BDS, uh, right? So how is it that when I, when I think about uh, BDS, I think about uh, South Africa apartheid sure and i think about how um you know they got boycotted you know um mm -hmm. uh, was it coca-cola right they were one of the the big companies that uh took a lot of uh, a lot of hit in the, in the public eye how is it that we have a a state a sovereign nation that is basically that is a practicing apartheid but still referred to as a democracy and at the same time when when folks are trying to treat it respond to it as as it actually is as an apartheid uh, government system they're being stonewalled how does that actually exist that people don't see the connection the correlation between these two well um one at bds with respect to israel palestine yeah you know it it it, it comes out of the spirit of the struggle in south africa um the problem is that the Zionist um, uh, movement and Zionist sim sympathizers, the way that they present apartheid is by having an exact analogy with South Africa. So unless it lines up, unless, unless when you juxtapose what Israel's doing with what's, what the South African Afrikaner government was doing, yeah. if, they don't, if it doesn't all line up, it's not apartheid. Just an, just an absolute trivialization of the, of the term takes it out of its denotational context, okay? Mm -hmm. it, there is an international standard for apartheid. There is a definition for apartheid. There are multiple def definitions, actually, and these definitions, when you put them all together, it shows that it's, it's, it's something that is systemic in nature. Even if, South, even if South African apartheid had never existed, mm -hmm. Israel would still be an apartheid state just based on the standard that is present. The International Convention on the Suppression and Punishment of the Crime of Apartheid, 1973, popularly known as the Apartheid Convention, says that, that apartheid is inhuman acts um, uh, committed with the purpose of establishing and maintaining 
um, a regime of dis- of di- discrimination between one r- one racial group over another racial group and, si- and systematically oppressing them. So there's a sy- there's a systemic element. There's a systematic element involved. There's a purposefulness involved mm-hmm. of maintaining racial domination over one group over another. The Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court of 1998 says a very similar thing, but it contextualizes it a little bit uh, in in a sense by saying that it must be an institutionalized regime in which this racial domination is occurring. What you have in Israel is an institutionalized regime of maintaining racial, with the purpose of maintaining and uh, and, uh, establishing and maintaining racial domination of one group over another. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happened in South Africa. But in South Africa, the black majority were the marginalized. They They were the subordinate. The sure. predominant group, the dominant group, were the white Afrikaners. So in Israel, they say, "Well, we, the Jews, are the majority. The Palestinian Arabs are the are the are the minority. This is different than South Africa. Therefore, it's not apartheid." Well, they don't know basic English because <laughs> to be the marginalized group does not mean you are the numerical minority. It just means you're the marginalized group. Right. You can be one person and be the dominant. You can be a hundred people and be the subordinate. So the fact that you are the numerical majority is not relevant to the definition. Is there a system of racial domination? Is it institutionalized? Mm-hmm. That's the standard. So when they make these kind of like, and then they also point to petty apartheid. Well, in Israel, Palestinians can ride the same bus. Petty apartheid. Mm. Yes. So in, so, in, so in South Africa, they had no blacks allowed. Right. And then because in, because in Israel, they don't have no Arabs allowed, in their in the in the restaurants, they can both go to the same restaurant. They can ride the same bus, because that there's a there's a difference there. It's not it's not apartheid. That's trivializing the term. That's trivializing the struggle. That's distracting the public away from what is really going on, because there is indeed apartheid from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, not just in the occupied territories, but within Israel proper itself. Israel has national institutions. The World Zionist Organization, the Jewish National Fund, and a lot of others, Israel Land Authority, ILA, I mean, you name it, that purposely make sure that the land is used for for national purposes. Mm-hmm. And Israel makes a distinction between nationality and citizenship. So when Israel says for national purposes, what is what it is essentially saying is for Jewish, for Jewish concerns, for Jewish interests only. Right. And this is coded in the law, but it's not. But it's not made overt, so that distinction he's, um, needs to be made clear as well. Mm. You know what this takes me back to? It takes me back, um, uh, basically, to the Jim Crow South. Yes, and you can and you can make a great case that there was apartheid during during that period here. Yeah. Abs- absolutely, because government hand was uh, definitely involved in that institutionalized regime. Of course, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but 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 this is this is the problem with. With, univer- with universalizing its application to mm-hmm. every form of discrimination. Mm-hmm. Just because there's discrimination everywhere does mm-hmm. not mean there's apartheid everywhere. Right. And that's how they trivialize the term. They say, well, you have discrimination in France. You have discrimination in Great Britain. You, right. have, you have the discrimination in Poland. You have discrimination in Nigeria. So you start naming 150 countries. You say, well, since, since they're all discriminating, then they're either all apartheid or none of them are apartheid. So leave that term alone. So their analysis but it it dismisses uh, it dismisses the exact me, exactly uh, it dismisses it. the structural ele- element involved. Mm-hmm. It is apartheid structurally and functionally. 
So you right. can't just look at just mere dis- discrimination and say, because there's discrimination now, there's apartheid. No, it's much more than that. Yeah. It's the maintaining of racial domination. Mm-hmm. And that element is, is what's crucial. But that's omitted from Zionist discourse. Because once you get to the definition, once you get to the root meaning of, of uh, apartheid, they lose the argument. So what, they, what, what do they do? When you have a bad case and you, you have a bad client and you're an attorney, you change the topic in mm-hmm. order to win the case. So that's exactly what they try to do. So our job as activists is to bring it back to the topic. And if we bring it back to the topic, they lose. Mm. And, if we, and if we allow them to distract us, we lose. Right. So in addition to dealing with our elected officials, you also educate those who are unaware, who are uninformed about uh, the reality of life and the reality of, uh, of laws that should be that should be adhered to that would actually change the course of, um, uh, of life in Palestine, in, his, in Israel. Right. And, and, uh, and the interesting thing about international law is that sometimes it's misused and abused to justify the mm-hmm. continuing of the occupation. So Israel uses international law to, because international law has these weird exceptions for necessity, for emergency, or whatever it is. So Israel uses the in, invokes the concept of security to, ju- to justify its actions. We're doing this because of our security. We're doing this because we want to save our people. We're doing this in self-defense. So they use these kind of excuses to justify their, o- their oppressive policies towards the Palestinians. So international law is not always, is not always on the side of the oppressed, mm. but it's the best thing that we have. So we have to use it to, our, to the... To the fullest extent that we possibly can to make sure that we get some semblance of justice in Palestine. It's not always the right solution. It's not always the just solution, but it's the best outcome that we can come up with if we implement that. Because what are the, what are the alternatives? Yeah. Do we use, do, do we use Israeli law? <laughs> you know, I mean, so you really, I mean yeah. that, that, so we have to, so we have to go to those basic principles and overall it does touch on some very key concepts, like the right of return, which is grounded in many bodies of international law. Mm-hmm. So Palestinians have the right to return to their homes, and that's clear under international law. Israel wants the Palestinian negotiating team to completely just reject that right, mm-hmm. pretend it doesn't exist, and then, then we can negotiate peace. What's well, the number? Us activists, we're not going to do that. What's the estimated number right now? Of, uh, of Palestinian of, refugees? Yeah. Okay, well, um, you have about 12.5 million Palestinians worldwide, let's mm. say. And I believe 7 to 8 million of them are, are refugees. Wow. Yes, um, the majority of the Palestinian population are indeed refugees. Um, and um, they, live in, they live in historic Palestine. They live in the neighboring Arab states. They live outside the Arab states as well. Some of us are here. Right. So um, first generation, second generation, third generation, you name it. And this is the problem that Israel has, is it's a demographic problem. Those numbers come back. It's a, it's a demographic. And notice what Benjamin Netanyahu said in the run-up to the election. Mm-hmm. He said he intends to annex Israeli settlements in the, in the West Bank. He didn't say, I want to annex the West Bank. Hmm. There's a crucial distinction between the two. Yeah. If I annex Israeli settlements, I'm annexing the Jewish population. Right. If I annex the West Bank, I'm Next annexing the, the Palestinian population. Mm-hmm. And if I annex them and I want to keep this image, and I want to maintain this image of being a democracy, 
then I have to give these Palestinians the right to vote. But that's three, a little over three million Palestinians that you're going to include within the Israeli citizenry. That's a problem. Yeah. Because now the demographic balance is not so in your favor anymore. It's mm-hmm. not an 80-20 balance. Now it's about a 60-40 at that point. That's not counting the Gaza Strip. But there's no Israeli settlements there, so he wasn't talking about that. Right. So he was referring specifically to, to Israeli settlements. And what he's talking about, the code, there's, there's code to, to that language. Mm-hmm. The code is, I want to annex Area C. Area C is, one of the, is 60% of the West Bank under the Oslo Agreements. Okay, mm-hmm. so he, he wants to annex 60% of the West Bank, which includes about 150,000 approximately Palestinians there. So he'll annex them. I'll take 150,000 into the Israeli citizenry. That's not going to destroy the demographic balance. Right. Remember the basic thrust of Zionism as much land as possible with as least amount of Palestinians as possible. That's mm-hmm. the basic thrust behind it. So, okay, I'm not going to annex the 3 million Palestinians. So, whatever land that remains that they live on, they can have their own autonomy. State minus, he actually said this in an interview. I don't care what you want to call it. Mm-hmm. State minus, autonomy plus, it doesn't matter to me. So this is the problem. It's the fact that we exist. Our mere existence is a threat to a nation state. Imagine, this, is, this is what I want to tell our congressional rep, representatives. I want them to understand just, just the basic thought process here so they can see how wrong it is. Mm-hmm. The fact that we exist is a problem, is a demographic threat. It's an existential threat. Yeah. To the survival of a state, the fact that we exist, you don't find that problematic? Mm-hmm. Just say yes. Just say yes to that. I don't even want you to advocate for any policy pers- uh, that's pro-Palestinian. Just say yes to that question. Mm-hmm. That you find that problematic, please, because that's exactly the policy that's being implemented. That's exactly our three point eight billion dollars a year. It's going to the to the continuation of that kind of idea. Yeah. And yeah. we don't have a problem with that? Now, that's problematic. We need to clean house in Congress if that's the case. We need some right-minded thinkers in there, period. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think it's, it's interesting. Uh, as we wind down, I think it's interesting. You talk about their existence being the problem. I find that really interesting because what comes to mind is the statement I, I quite often hear, um, which is Israel's right to exist. Right. Uh, That comes up, you know, quite often when we're talking about uh, any negotiation has to start with Israel's right to exist. It's a precondition, right? Yeah. And and you know what? If we, you know, if we can just get to the point where we're talking about human dignity, we're talking about um, actually real democracy, you know, where every where every vote counts, every person counts. And there's not a sliding scale of, um, you know, of, of rights, then you know, then we actually, we could actually have something, right? Um, But that's not the case. Uh, But I think you do a much better job of articulating, you know, things, uh, um, you know, within the region and and, and its cause uh, than than I certainly could. Um, Can you tell us a bit about AMP has, um, AMP, I'm sorry, has has an event coming up? Yes. uh, Okay. so actually, before before I get to that, if I if I may, sure, sure. I want to I want to tackle that point that you just made about uh, about that or the Zionist talking point mm-hmm. about um, Israel having the right to exist. Yeah, you know we have to make a distinction between factual reality and um, moral correctness. Okay, so 
if somebody asks me, do you recognize Israel? The answer is absolutely. Mm-hmm. How can I not recognize the very entity that caused the dispossession of my people? How can I not recognize the very entity that stole my land and our land? How can I, rec- how can I not recognize the entity that's continuing to dispossess my people, that is continuing to, to deny Palestinians their rights, that is continuing to um, enforce a brutal occupation on Palestinians in the West Bank, that is continuing to enforce an illegal blockade on the Palestinians in Gaza, that is continuing to deny us our basic rights. How could I not recognize that entity? Of course I recognize it. It exists. It is a factual reality. Mm-hmm. The other question, the moral question, not the factual question. We just dealt with the factual question. Right. You can't deny facts. Mm-hmm. The moral question, does that entity have the right to exist? Now, that's a moral question. When you present it in that way, no. No entity has the right to exist at the expense of another people. I don't mm. care what state it is. I don't care what people it is. I don't care what nation it is. You have no right to establish a homeland for yourself at the expense and the ruins of another people. And actually, when I was at uh, Senator Durbin's office and I talked to one of the staffers, I asked that question. Mm-hmm. I said, does any country have the right to exist at the expense of another people? And one of the other staffers said, don't answer that question. And then he, and then he, he, then he went, then he went ahead and answered. I guess he's the more polished one. I don't know, but you know, he pretty much said, you know, Durbin is your ally. And you know what? And I will say this: Senator Senator Durbin on the on the law mm-hmm. is our ally. Yeah. Okay. But I'm holding Senator Durbin to a higher standard, right. and I want him to live up to that higher standard. As a constituent of his, I have the right to hold him to a higher standard. Absolutely. And I want him to follow that standard. So I'm asking him in-depth questions, not superficial questions. So that's, so that's the basic thrust of that. Now back to um, the event. Yes, it is May 3rd, um, 71 years after Al-Nakba. Is mass expulsion of Palestinians possible? This is by award-winning journalist Amira Haas. She will be there May 3rd from 8 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. at the Universal School. The address is 7350 West 93rd Street in Bridgeview, Illinois. Um, Zip code is 60455. Again, that's the Universal School address, 7350 West 93rd Street in uh, Bridgeview. Um, Zip code is 60455. Um, It is on May 3rd from 8 to 9.30. Please, please be there. Okay. Brother Tarek, it has been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, I hope you'll be back uh, soon. Um, I, it'll, it'll be an honor to be here again. Thank you so much. All right. All right, Radio Islam family, we're going to take a short break, but we will be back in a moment. This is Radio Islam, and we're on WCEV 1450 AM.